This episode of the Henry's Uncle podcast is brought to you by donations from our generous supporters. If you love the Henry's Uncle podcast and want to support us and our nonprofit, please go to henrysuncle.org and click the donate button and or give us a five-star rating on your podcast platform. Thank you for your continued support. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to the Henry's Uncle podcast. Our guest today is the incredible Stephanie Whittles-Wax. She is a incredible author, but also the co-founder of a podcast network, Lemonada Media. I will admit I was very nervous to talk with Stephanie as her book was one of the first books on addiction and grief that I read after the passing of my brother. Her book uh, named Everything is Horrible and Wonderful, Tragic Comic Memoir of Genius, Heroin, Love and Loss truly taught me that having a loved one with a substance use disorder is is tough, complicated, and messy, and that is perfectly okay to talk about. In our podcast today, we talk about her incredible brother and comedian, Harris Whittles, who you may know as a writer and executive producer of uh, Parks and Recreation. We also discuss what it was like having this family member uh, have a substance use disorder, the pain and suffering from losing a sibling from addiction, what she has learned about addiction since his death, and the emotions of naming her son after her late brother. And spoiler alert, uh, Harrison does make a very 2021 appearance in this podcast. I hope you enjoy our conversation. I have the privilege of speaking with Stephanie Whittles Wax. Please tell me I'm saying that right. Good job. You did it. You did it. <laughs> You know, I first came across your name, but maybe a month after my brother died. He died December 9th, 2018. So it was somewhere like around January 2019 timeframe. I was trying to find anything on drug addiction, any book, whatever that can relate to. And I was going through stuff and I was like, oh, Aziz, cool. Cause like he's on the front cover. That was the last show my brother and I saw together with my wife was Aziz in Portland. I don't know, three, four years ago. So I was like, okay, like we both like love Aziz, Parks and Rec, et cetera, so on. And then boom, like your book that day or when I got it, it was like, I just couldn't put it down. So I am so happy to be talking to you and I'm sorry for the long <laughs> uh, intro there, but I want you to introduce yourself so people um, who don't know you yet have the privilege of knowing you now. That was so nice. I'm so sorry that you found me because it means that you had a terrible tragedy. So I'm sorry about that. <laughs> I wish you didn't have to find me. I lost my brother too in 2015. And he worked with Aziz. Uh, that's why Aziz wrote the forward to the book on Parks and Recreation. He was a comedian and a TV writer and producer and my favorite person and died of heroin overdose. And I grieved uh, terribly and tremendously and ended up sort of filtering all of that into a nine-month journey of writing that book. And I sort of did it in a in a haze. I truly do not even remember doing it, but I it's it's there. I see it. So I know that I did. And you're telling me that you read it. So I'm assume that it is done. And from there I partnered up with I have a background in theater and writing and performance and voice acting. And I teamed up with another woman who lost her brother also. And we created a podcast network called Lemonada that I co-found, you know, I, I run with her now. We're a, an actual business. We've got 20 employees. We're a real, a real shop. And we are working on our 13th show right now. But our first show is a show called Last Day that is um, 
about opioids and second season's about suicide. So I am a lot of fun, basically. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, yeah. It's that laughter, right? Uh, (laughs) Yeah. I remember finding your podcast because, again, I read your book and I was like, oh, your name popped up again. And so I was like, got to listen to it. And your voice on the podcast is like perfect when you narrate and have the voiceovers. And again, I can't recommend that podcast enough. I I sent it to everyone I could, you know, just because, again, when you're in that grieving process and I was trying to learn as much as possible and you had so many wonderful guests. And I want to get to that later because my favorite one out of all of them was besides your talk with your dad was because uh, again, going through the book, it was, it was, you can still tell, um, but <laughs> Dr. Gabor uh, Mate was, that was amazing. So when I booked this, I started reading your book again, just to get my mind back. And when I started reading again this past Sunday, it came up and I was like, oh gosh, your brother's six year anniversary is tomorrow. Mm-hmm. And your birthday is the day after. <laughs> So I was, you know, like I've mentioned before the podcast, I, I wrote an email yesterday just saying, hey, I, I'm looking forward to talking to you just for any, you know, any uh, semblance of like, hey, I want to, you know, maybe reschedule something like that. So I'm I'm in some uh, weird way, happy to talk to you the, the day before of an anniversary, because do you have that feeling of when the anniversary comes, like you're two to three weeks before, like your body just starts shifting, like the energy around you? just start shifting and and everything just starts coming right back up. It's horrible. Yeah. It's been really, really, really bad this year. Yeah. Actually, Saturday, I just, you know, um, you're more recent in your grief. I've, you know, coming on six years, it's kind of like, it is something that is just part of our world now, unfortunately. And it sucks. But the constant crying has kind of dried up. I, I don't have time to do all that crying. I would never get anything done if I cried as much as I did initially. But man, on Saturday, I truly just completely lost it. And I just wept. And my husband was like, lady, you need to get in bed and watch TV for the whole day. And I will take these kids. And, you know, I have such a great partner and I'm so grateful. Could not have survived this without that person. His name is Mike. He has a name. But yeah, it's terrible. It's terrible. The anticipation of it is absolutely devastating. And it sneaks up on you every year. And it's your body. My body hurts so bad. I've had to take multiple migraine (laughs) medications this week. My neck feels like rocks are in it. I've like, I'm like so sore. It's crazy how connected your, your mind and your body are. I want to get into some maybe later, but you mentioned in your book and other interviews, you do suffer from anxiety though. Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 I, I love your, your uh, post, <laughs> Jess's post to your partner, uh, uh, business partner's post about sending you some uh, relaxing oils for <laughs> your birthday. Yeah. Um, Let's see. It's right here. <laughs> Chill out. Chill out. Yeah. Yeah. Cause yeah, I, I suffer from awful anxiety when I turned 25, it just hit me laying on a beach in Hawaii with my now wife. I had no idea what it was until then. But what I want to talk about today is really kind of the, and you did it in such a wonderful way in your book, you know, living with someone going through addiction because it's, it's so hard and it's hard to put in words because there's so many times like you don't want to disrespect the person. And I know for me, it's my parents had such reservations, you know, doing my podcast and stuff, talking, you know, openly talking about it. 
because I honestly did not know he had an addiction issue up until the last year he died. So he suffered for about a decade going in and out. We shared an office that whole time together. We grew up in the same room, you know, unfortunately had to share the same room for 18 years, all that stuff. And I had no idea he hid it from me. He told my parents four months in and then they hid it from me. Just like, you know, your brother asked, you know, to hide it from you. But can you describe yourself? You know, I know again, it's, it's, you have a wonderful book, you know, going into detail, but describing what it's like living with someone with an addiction and then confiding in in it with you, but not being able to tell anybody else. Cause so many people out there right now, as you know, going through the exact same thing. It's really hard. It's tragically hard. I always thought after Harris died, like what was harder? The part where I was on that roller coaster with him or losing him. It's all hard, but I think no one knows what to do. There's no manual for really hard moments like that. No one talks about it openly. So there's like tons of stigma around it. And you end up like Googling something. And then there's a lot of like for-profit activity going on in this space. And we've gotten better at it. I mean, I think doing last day, I, I learned a ton. But at the time, I, d- I just knew nothing. I didn't know that addiction was a disease. I didn't know that it was a chronic illness that you could manage. I didn't know about medication-assisted treatment. I didn't know that recovery is a lifelong process, not a 30-day process. There's so much that I didn't know. And my desire to do the show that I do was about trying to fill in those gaps and figure out what could I have done differently. And at the end of the day, it it comes down to the fact that like we do the best that we can with the information that we have at the time. And I think if I were dealing with it now, I'd have a ton more resources and tools at my disposal. But when I was going through it, one of my biggest frustrations with him was why can't you just stop? Why are you doing this thing that's killing you and that's ruining your life and that's ruining our lives and that's ruining everybody's lives? Why are you choosing to do this? And what I've learned since then is like, it's obviously not a choice. And so if we deal with it like cancer and we deal with it compassionately and we deal with it like, or, or not even cancer, like diabetes, something that just will never go away that you have to manage with your behavior and with your lifelong commitment to making yourself healthy, I think families would probably be in a better space. I just think we've been fed a lot of really bad information for a long time. And if you, if you don't know, then how can you fix something? So I don't know. There's just like the emotional component, which is just very, 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 very hard to watch somebody that you love destroying themselves. It's, it's torturous. Watching somebody you love who's extremely smart torture themselves. And it doesn't make sense. And I think when you are the one that is not using and there's somebody who is using and you're looking at it through your lens and you're going, this doesn't make sense. Why would you do it? That entire framework has to be shifted. Yeah. What was your reaction, your first reaction when your brother told you about his addiction? I mean, I was shocked and sad. And it was three days before I got married. So also very preoccupied with that. And my big kind of thought was, all right, well, he needs to go to treatment. And then if he goes to treatment, he'll get better. Just truly a naive Way to, way to think. Again, it goes back to like the information and, and the knowledge that we have. But yeah, it, it was it was awful. I, I was like completely blindsided. I mean, I, I knew that he 
was a recreational drug user. And I thought that he had all of that under control. And when he sort of said that he didn't have it under control, it just thrust us into a new reality. And there was like before (laughs) and after. And um, (laughs) we never, we never could go back. It was like a real turning point for the entire family, not just for him, for all of us. Yeah. You know, my, my parents say that to this day still, you know, just they rack their brains every single day and, and they say like, you know, we, we thought after 30 days, the treatment, we thought he was, you know, free to go. Right. You know, you're, you're good to go. You're done. You're never going to do it again. And, and it's sad, like you mentioned, you know, the amount of time, you know, we've put into this learning about addiction, you know, I, I kick myself now not putting that time in beforehand. And it's not, it's not like it's, easily accessible. I mean, well, now it is, um, but you know, you do have to dig. It's not like it's right there and you learn the ins and outs, but it's becoming more accessible. But yeah, I just, ah, you know, I, I kick myself every single day going, why in the hell did I not just do what I did after you died? And that's the guilt. I know. But again, you know what you know, when you know it, you knew what everyone knows and what everyone knows is wrong. So it's not like, it's not like you (laughs) were any worse. Like nobody knows what to do. And when you're faced with it, because we have, we have said in our society that there are things that are acceptable and there are things that are not. And we really like to be very binary about that. You know, one of my big passions since my brother died is to just be like, look, mental health, all of that, you know, addiction, it's all part of being a human. And so many people suffer with this stuff. So it's not like if you have it, you're bad. If you don't, you're good. There's, it's all part of the human experience. So I get the guilt. I get the guilt, but I just, I don't think it's useful. So you should just stop. <laughs> I'll try. I'll try. There's a lot of things I felt guilty about that I I, I don't anymore. So it's uh, a little over two years into it. So still, still working things out, but um. <laughs> So the the interesting part in your book, you know, and this is going back to 2015, and you you released your book in like what 2018 ish. Yes, it was right before my son was born, and he was born in 2018. So yes, yes. So what was interesting in your book, it's and, I, and you talk about it was so your brother was uh, addicted to opioids, and then when you mentioned how he you know he transitioned from pills to heroin, and still like in today's world, it's like oh my god, heroin, right? But in reality, they're the exact same thing. What was that transition like for you when when it was like, oh, from pills, but now he's shooting heroin? Like, oh my God, this is like a thousand times worse all of a sudden. I think the difference is that you can get pills from a doctor and you get heroin from a dealer, and that feels different. And they are the same thing, but one is legal and one is illegal. And one you can take with water which is normal. And when you have to like shoot a needle into your arm. So there's this level of like, holy shit, this is real that I think, I don't know. It was like, there was a line in the sand and we crossed over and became a, a, it became a a higher stakes situation. Was he getting his pills from doctors or, you know, you know what they call a pill mill or was he going out, you know, getting him where he got heroin Initially from doctors and then from dealers, but yeah, whoever, mm-hmm. you know, in your book, you mentioned he had a will and I, you know, I've been thinking about this a lot this week because even your brother's manager said, it's very, it's very uncommon for a young person such as your brother to have a will. Do you think death ever crossed his mind and that's why he had things in order? 
I don't know. I think he probably did. I mean, I don't, I, again, like, I don't think he was stupid. I think he was like very smart. And I think he knew that he was risking his life, you know, on some level. And you know, he wasn't like a super organized person at all. So it is, it, it was a shocking revelation. I have to assume that some part of him knew that he was playing with, with fire. Yeah. And you got the wonderful, uh, state to you and had to deal with all that. And <laughs> my brother had no will. So it, everything came to my parents. He left me his, his, uh, SEP accounts. And so I had to walk in with his ashes into the, well, I didn't left him in my car that day, but picked up his ashes and then walked into the bank to sign over his, his, uh, SEP account. I was like, this is just a wonderful day. Thank you so much for yeah this BS. It just, when I read your book, it's scary just how similar your brother and my brother are in terms of how they act, how they do things. I mean, it's just, it's beyond scary. That's why I ask about the will because he didn't, but I, there was always, I don't know. He, I think what, what comes, what comes down to is he talks to my parents a lot or talked to my parents a lot about being homeless. I don't know why smart guy, you know, we've been in business now for 10 years. He was fine living and but he kept, he talked to my parents a couple of times, like, I'm going to be homeless. I'm going to be homeless. I'm going to be homeless. And I always, my parents told me that maybe twice about those stories. And I was like, why in the hell does he think that way? And, you know, I finally realized, and I, and this is my assumption is, is if my parents died, which he always freaked out about, if somehow you know, they, they passed away, they weren't going to be there to take care of him. And I'm pretty black and white. And so again, like you said, what you know is what you know. So he's going, oh crap, my brother's going to cut me off. I'm going to have no help because he was racking up a lot of, you know, debt and the end part of his life of buying pills. And, you know, and that's what I think it was almost kind of like, it's, you know, not a will, but there's just this after part, you know, you're, you're thinking about, and it's just, it's freaky. Like, I just, I don't know. It gives me the goosebumps. Like you're thinking that far ahead. Yeah. I mean, after he died, my husband and I, we had a kid at that point. We were like, oh, we should have a will because death is a thing that could happen. But I mean, we didn't even have one and we had an actual child that needed, you know, <laughs> that needed us to yet. care. <laughs> yeah, right. You, you should get one. We, I know. I know. We keep talking about it. And then even though we had a death, it's like, you know, we're still uh, dragging our feet. The part I, I found fascinating, well, fascinating because I went through it as well was the obsession of after your brother died and my brother died and I experienced this too, the obsession of recreating the timeline. Mm -hmm. I went to great depths and the one thing I could not open, well, besides his Apple iPhone, but I, I, his passwords are awful. Um, I was able to open every single account, but Snapchat. And I, one of those, a Snapchat or something else, it was one of those apps that I, I know that he was texting. I, I wanted to find the person he bought the drugs from. I don't know why. I just had this, like, I found everything. And when I read your book, you talked about the exact same thing of uh, the obsession of, you know, that morning, that day, that night, everything, just recreating the timeline. When did you finally stop with that obsession? <laughs> I think somewhere like around the year mark. I think I just was in very deep grief and needing to kind of know everything and writing the book became a way for me to process all of it. And right around the year mark is when I was kind of done writing. And once I was done writing, I was like, 
there are some, some things I'm just not going to be able to, to know. And I'm just going to have to accept that. Honestly, like knowing everything isn't going to bring him back. It's not going to like amplify my ability to understand why this happened. And I just didn't have as a great a need for it anymore. Yeah, I struggle with this a lot because I, I still I, I'm not nearly as obsessive as I was then. I mean, I haven't checked his accounts in like six months. And, you know, for me, it was like I logged into his Google Maps or his Google account. And there's a there's a feature where if you turn it on, it tracks every single movement you take throughout the day. And he that had that on. I don't know how long, a few years. And, you know, he had no idea. And there was three instances where I was like, I knew he was lying. And I knew he was going to get drugs. So I, I looked those dates up, even though, you know, again, he lied right to our faces saying he didn't have any drugs on him, but it tracked him straight from Portland out to Gresham and back. And Gresham's like a suburb about 20 miles east of here. The day after Thanksgiving, we were all to hit our last Thanksgiving, two weeks before he we passed, we were all together. And it was fr- that Friday, the day after we went fishing out on the coast that day came back we were we stopped to get some uh, whiskey for some hot toddies and we were watching uh, tv that night and all of a sudden he's like i gotta go i gotta go back to my apartment downtown the lies were so bad like i lost my mail key and i'm like it's 7 p.m on a friday night of thanksgiving and you have to go meet your friend to get a mail key like it just and we offered to like drive him down and, he, and then you know i found it there it was a month later i found him he took an uber from my house and it was it's 40 miles one way so he did 80 miles just to go score pills and that's when i was like that's when it hit me how severe addiction is that you would leave your family on thanksgiving to go drive 80 miles in an uber to pick up oxy pills which really were fentanyl pills and killed him two weeks later oh it just it drove me nuts and like just you know again like your book helped me so much through my grieving process because I could relate so much to what you're going through every step of the journey. And it was like, okay, I'm not crazy because grief is so different from everyone. And they tell you like a therapist, here's the five steps. But like, as you know, it's total bullshit. Like (laughs) you might hit step five before step one. And, but I, I think, I think that's what you just said really exemplifies what an absolute disease it is. I mean, that's where you realize there is not willpower involved in this. This is something that is out of somebody's control. That is what the addiction is. The addiction makes you lie and drive 80 miles. And I mean, my brother never would have done that stuff. That's not who he was. And I'm sure your brother wasn't that person either. No, no, he was funny as hell. He was the life of the party. He was, you know, he could, any room he walked into, you know, he would light it up with a smile. You know, it just, uh, Again, like me and my my best friend, our favorite TV show was Parks and Rec. We didn't know the writers behind it or anything like that. We just loved it because it was, you know, we always sent, you know, Ron Swanson, you know, gifts back and forth and memes. And when I read your book, I was like, oh my God, this is the guy who was writing this. Like it just, ah, how much of a genius he was, you know, creating these shows and even Master of None. Like it just, uh, you mentioned in the book, social media. And I couldn't even imagine what you went through having TMZ and all those news outlets publishing his death before you even knew, and then seeing the comments. In this day and age, what was going through your mind? Because, I mean, you just found out your best friend, your brother died. And then all of a sudden, you see the articles, but you see the comments. And we all know, never read the comments. 
but they're not hard to. Yeah, it's brutal. Yeah, it's it was brutal for sure. It was a layer that I wouldn't wouldn't wish on anyone. I mean, there is really there's no other way to describe it. It's it's awful, <laughs> and I tried as much as possible to kind of be off of social media during that time because it was really painful. But yeah, it did did kind of a terrible job. And and it and you know the comments kept coming over the years. Again, I, I really do believe that it stems from a lack of understanding. I don't think that anybody understands. And because we're steeped in this lack of understanding, people feel like, you know, they can judge. And it's like, well, this is going to come to your back door at some point, friend. Yeah. <laughs> I, don't know, I don't know when, but it definitely is. <laughs> you know, it's so interesting. Like, you, you talk to so many people. And again, there's what? This year was 82,000 people who died of drug overdoses doesn't that doesn't even count alcohol addiction ha, you know it's got to affect almost 100 percent of the population and yet we still don't want to accept it we don't want to accept someone who takes drugs or is abusing alcohol it's it's i was like that i i get it but it's it's sad that it takes us almost basically to death to understand that to death or death and i've been wrecking my brains now for over two years how do you change that stigma i mean it's such an massive flip and you know after you know going through your first season of last day do you see anything that could you know i don't want to say flip it but five years from now do you see any change or what do you think it takes for us to understand addiction or at least have a level of empathy for someone going through addiction unfortunately i think the the level of empathy takes it happening to you i think this country is full of really great people but I think that we don't always do community very well. And we don't always understand that if someone is suffering in our community, that it makes us worse off, right? There's a lot of sort of like rugged individualism, you know, it's like, well, it's not in my backyard, so I don't care. <laughs> and, um, you know, I think this bleeds into a lot of aspects of life. If we cared that everyone had food and everyone had shelter and I think we'd all be better off, right? That's my view of the, of the of the universe. Um <laughs> but I do think that it's unfortunate that it seems to have to impact you directly to care. I think what it's going to take to change it is uh money and policy and primary medical doctors asking you about it at your appointments. And making mental health something that's not sitting in the shadows, but that's talked about openly, that is as important as, as physical health. You know, if your primary care doctor, every time you did your yearly checkup was like, talk to you about addiction, talk to you about what are you doing too much of? What are you, you know, without judgment, without shame. I just don't think there's any sort of avenue to have these conversations right now. It feels like something you have to hide. And if we all feel like we have to hide it, then we're going to. Yeah. So uh, you have, is it about a, what, a seven-year-old daughter? Mommy. <laughs> Mommy. Honey, I'm recording something right now. You want to say hi? Mommy. Say hi. Hi. That's Harry. Hi. <laughs> Mommy. Oh, is that little Harrison? Yeah. So we just had our... Uh, Mama's here? Yeah. Okay, I'll come see her soon. <laughs> yeah, I'll come see her soon. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. Oh, it's okay. He has hey, no is... no regard for what I do. None at He's all. What? He looks like a two-year-old? He's two, yeah. Yeah. I'll come there in a little bit, okay? Okay. <laughs> okay, can I get huggy? 
<laughs> okay, I love you. I'll see you soon, okay? No, no. I know. Can someone come get the child? <laughs> I'm literally doing an interview. Hello? Let me just let me just take him. Hang on one it's second. Okay. I'm so no sorry. Worries. Hang on. Hang on. It's okay. Sorry. Oh, it's fine. <laughs> so uh, work, work from home life. Yep. So Harry, I was assuming you named your child after your brother. Yeah. I yeah. Did. Yeah. So we just had our second three weeks ago. Oh my gosh, and what? Yeah. <laughs> You're so like rested and co- coherent. Uh, you know, d- again, that's the second person who said that to me. Um, I, my wife's going to hear this and she's going to get pissed. Oh my gosh. <laughs> Congrats. Yeah. That's Thank you. Wow. Well, Newborn. his name's Harrison too. Oh yes. my gosh, really? Yes. Um, that's wild. I, I don't know why. Yeah, we uh, Henry, Henry and Harrison, but... So for a long time, I thought about it. I was like, oh, I want to name James after my brother, right? What, and this is, okay, sorry, this is a totally different tangent now, but what was that process like to name your child after your brother? Was it weird? Did you put a lot of thought into it? What was that like? Yeah, I mean, so, so we're Jewish and in our faith, culture, what, whatever you want to call it, we name our children after the dead. <laughs> Um, which when I say it sounds quite dark and disturbed. Um, (laughs) but yeah, it's, it's how like I'm named after my grandfather and you know, my husband's named after his. And so that's like a common custom. So it was never a question that we were going to name him after Harris. Henry was our, like, it was either going to be Henry or it was going to be Harris. And then he was born and I, named him Harris. And then I called the NICU and I said, this is Harris's mom. And I like started crying and I was like, I can't have him be named Harris. So then he just wasn't named for a couple of days. And my mom was like, you've got to name your kid. And so we went with Harrison and we call him Harry. And uh, I don't even think he knows his name is Harrison. (laughs) How was that for you? You mean like having him named after Harris? Yeah. It's great. Like I loved Harris more than anything. And it's really meaningful to me that, that I can still feel like he's here in that way. And if my son turns out to be like him, that's great. Cause that means my son will be funny and that's the most important quality to have. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I, I think it's a name that carries a lot of uh, awesomeness and, It was too intense to sort of go the whole hog with the name, but it's close enough. It's in the same galaxy universe ballpark. So yeah, it's, it's awesome. I I, I love that they share a name. That's cool. Yeah. I I thought about that for a long time and I just, I was kind of like you wasn't sure, but you know, I was like, we'll just call him Harrison. And then his middle name is James. Oh, that's lovely. Yeah. So I was like, we got to have him in there, but I just, I, for the longest time, I wasn't sure what I would feel like calling him James. And I just, I don't know. It sounds bad, but it's like almost like I didn't want to curse him, you know, like I just, yeah, that's like I, the worst, you know, I totally, totally hear that. And it's so, it's like great of you to say that out loud. I mean, that's like, <laughs> it feels terrible. <laughs> no, I think that's like, let's, let's say it all. Let's like yeah. be honest about it. Yeah. Totally. Right. I mean, the way that I see it is my brother, his addiction was a part of him. 
it wasn't all of him. And I think he was more sort of vulnerable to it. I mean, Gabor got into it in the episode I did with him about, you know, he was like a highly sensitive person and he cared about people and he cared about the world and he thought deeply about it and he was so loved. And those are the parts that, that I'm going for. (laughs) I think, I think that what I have sort of come to realize in doing the show is that we all have addictions. We all have things that we do compulsively. His wasn't socially acceptable. Mine is. What's your addiction? Work. Is that what you just kind of just get lost in? 18 hours a day, baby. Jesus. (laughs) I'm like, I mean, (laughs) just working my way through all of it. (laughs) Think I'm going to cancel this interview? Uh Uh-uh. No. Oh, Um, man. No, but yeah, I mean, I, um, you know, and really doing the the episode with with Dr. Mate, Mm -hmm. you know, he was like, oh, you think that you don't have an addiction? Well, let's let's actually dig in there. You know, and and let me just prove to you that you, in fact, do. It's just that yours is something that we all sort of revere and his killed him. Yeah, that was such a I don't think it was like the first five minutes when it was like, is he a sensitive kid? And you're like, yes. And my brother was so sensitive. I mean, so and what really hit me was last night. I wrote this down was you talked about a podcast Harris was on the Pete Holmes podcast. And he says, please feel loved in this reality. And that hit me because for some reason, I don't get it. Like people love my brother, but he just never, something he couldn't accept it. It just, I don't know what it was. Like he wouldn't let it in or whatever. And it's like, you know, at his funeral, I'm like, how, how could you not feel that? It's, it's, I don't know. It's so interesting. Yeah. I mean, it's, again, that's what I'm saying. Like it's, it's so tethered to the entire human experience. It's like we all have moments where we feel unlovable. We all have moments where we feel more in tune with like pain than we do joy. And we all have ways of coping with that. And maybe you watch five hours of reality TV a night, right? (laughs) To sort of tune it to tune out. Maybe you eat like a box of donuts. Maybe you exercise for two hours a day. I wish that was my addiction. Maybe you work 18 hours a day. Maybe you shoot heroin. I mean, we're all kind of like coping with being on this spinning planet in the way that we cope with it. But yeah, I wish, th- I-, I wish that he would have felt loved because, uh, man, this, the story hopefully would have ended differently. You know, I know you joke about it a couple of times in your book, but do you think the industry he worked in kind of pushed him down that way or? No, I don't, I don't think so. I think he was surrounded by really lovely, caring people. I think he was really lucky and he had amazing people in his life. I think he had a really stressful job. And I think that's any industry, right? Like you'll, you'll find stress and pressure. And I think that he internalized a lot of that. So I I don't think it was like industry specific because there's plenty of people who aren't in writer's rooms that are dying of opioid overdoses, you know? Yeah. Yeah. No, I just like, I just like thinking about like your, your, I, I had a feeling you were what, just joking. What did I say? What did I say? It, it was the, uh, when you and I your joke mom, about I horrible, it was, horrible I, yeah, I, right. The Emmys, oh. I think it was. And I was like, yeah, I can, I can, you know, because oh, you know, yeah. people always joke about Hollywood, right. You know, and, and right, just right, kind of right. like pretentious. Oh, and, right. I said, know, I would have, I would have taken <laughs> drugs too. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, 
I joke about all sorts of things that probably shouldn't be joked about. No, you okay. gotta. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's, that's the beauty in things. And, but no, I was, I was asking cause, but like you said, every, every job has stress and every job has stress and assholes. So it's yeah, like, but- <laughs> you get that, you get that anywhere. <laughs> well, it didn't sound like your brother had any assholes to work with. You know, the, the text he was sending out to his boss was <laughs> just laughing in my bed last night going, I'm telling you. <laughs> He had he, the greatest people, absolute yeah. greatest people. Yeah. He well, when was you watch so, Parks and Rec, you know, you, yeah. you get that sense of just family, you know, it's uh, totally it's a yeah. great, wonderful, supportive yeah. place to be. So I want to talk about your parents because kind of had this similar thing happen where like you mentioned, like your mom just kind of dove into it, dove into like the activism and being part of it and wanting to kind of end the stigma and, and your dad pulled out. Like, did he didn't even go to LA? Well, you guys lived in Houston. Your family did. And so your brother was in LA. So he didn't go to LA to move out or help you guys move out of Harris's you know, house. And even like in the podcast, which I was listening to today again, because I remember it, like, it's like he wanted to speak up, but you just couldn't get the words out of him. And like in that book, you talk about like, you just can't get like, you just, he felt so frustrated. So what, what do you think it was like where your mom, is it just the kind of the person she is who just totally just went all in, you know, just trying to break the stigma and being supportive versus your dad, you know, just kind of pulling, pulling away. I mean, it's interesting because we did season two is on suicide and the highest demographic of people who die by suicide are older or middle-aged white men. And I think a lot of that comes down to the fact that they, I'm generalizing here, but there's a lack of mental health acceptance of like, I can talk about my feelings. I can go to a therapist. I can be an unstable human. I mean, my dad was like, go to work, come home, go to work, come home. (laughs) Like 40 years, right? Like just put yourself up by the bootstraps and that's who he is. Was he emotional growing up with with you and Harris, or, or was it just pers- you know kind of like just I'm the dad and you know? I mean, always very funny, which you can hear in the podcast. Yeah, um, <laughs> yeah. you can hear him like ribbing me and just like, yeah. what did he say? He's like, what is this like hobby of yours? Or <laughs> here you are trying to start a business. <laughs> whatever he said. Yeah, yeah. Um, this is your talent show. I don't know what he said, but. Um, <laughs> You know, he he was like super funny, very loving, but like not affectionate, not like verbally effusive. He didn't like tell you with his words how he felt and he still doesn't. And I think it was really hard for him because he never really had an outlet. Whereas like my mom, like I said, she's always been the PTO president. She was a teacher. She loves talking about her feelings. She created a support group. I mean, she's that's how she moves through the world. So everyone kind of processes grief how they move through the world. Yeah. My brother was like the energy of our family. And, you know, like, again, there was like a similar instance where like two and a half years ago for my dad's birthday, it was the last, uh, I think the last time we were all up at their house and he gets up there, we give him the present, like right as we walk in and then boom, he's gone. He's in bed sleeping the whole whole weekend i mean literally like all day and he wakes up at night he's like it's like 8 30 we're like all right we're going to bed he's like what and we're like well why are you sleeping all day and you know now it's like obvious you know obviously what the hell is going on did you sh- see a a shift with your dad's energy 
like just being deflated. Mm-hmm. Like I know my dad, you know, he's what, 70 trying to retire, all that kind of stuff. I getting older, but there was just that, you know, firstborn son, you know, he was the life of the family and and now it's like gone. Cause he was the outspoken one. Like, Oh, I, I, I love you guys. You know, all that kind of stuff. You know, my brother wasn't, you know, I'm not, I'm pretty introverted and quiet and it's just how I am. Well, you're doing so. a lot of great talking on this show. I'll tell you that. <laughs> I apologize. <laughs> no, um, no. How- I, I mean, yeah, totally. I mean, my dad like was destroyed. <laughs> He's never bounced back. It's, it's been awful. It takes such a toll on families. It's never been the same. And that's just, that's truth, right? I mean, it's just, I think because he didn't talk about it and he's never talked about it, it's like eating him alive. You know, he's just really like, he's just had to deal with it internally. And I don't wish that upon anybody. I think therapists are amazing. Everyone should go see a therapist. Go see a therapist right now. Stop listening (laughs) to this show. Right. Go see a therapist. Yeah, I know I did. Two weeks after he died, I, I... Amen. Yeah. You know, I found him. I, I, again, like, like I told you before the podcast, your, your book has just drudged up like all my PTSD this week and none of your fault, none, none of your fault. But yeah, I was like, what, you know, listening to the, the autopsy or reading about the autopsy report, I never ordered his death certificate, you know, and it's like reading it. I was like mentally going through his condo that night. And right when you said the bloody nose, cause like that was me, like I, he was in the official autopsy, like they, you know, said Harris was supine or supine, terrible with words. And I'm like, you know, I just say my brother was basically wedged between the couch and the table. And I don't know what it is. It's always me trying to lift him up, turning his face and seeing the bloody nose. And right when you wrote that, or the, the autopsy report wrote that, I was just like, every, the smell, everything just came up. And it's just, it's creepy. And you mentioned, and I, I have this all the time still, you mentioned in your book, how I'm probably going to say this wrong, where you were kind of, you know, going about your day, right. And, you know, doing whatever and taking pictures of your daughter and you get that phone call and you think about it like, wow, all day here I was having the normal day while your brother is dead on a rug. And I have that same thought every single day, like text, you know, I was texting the family that day, you know, and he was dead six hours before the first text, you know, it's just like the weirdest thing. Yeah, I I hear you. I mean, I do think that that kind of stuff does sort of calm down a little bit as you go on with time. And I know we're at the top of the hour uh, now, and you have to go to your next meeting. I do. I, I okay. actually I realize it's four oh one, and I have yes. a meeting at, that started at four. No, no worries. I totally forgot. Stephanie, I want to st- thank you so much. I will thank you again. I know I've said it multiple times throughout this uh, podcast. Thank you for for writing your book. It truly helped me for me to be open about my brother's death as well. So thank you for your time and and sharing your story to the world. I am grateful that you had me on. And again, I think it's amazing that you've taken your grief and you've done this nonprofit and like incredible. And I appreciate you. Thank you for having me on. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. And again, all the best for the rest of the week. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to the Henry Zunkel podcast. Please like, subscribe, and leave us a review. If you would like to learn more about our nonprofit, please go to henryzunkel.org. As we say here at Henry Zunkel, you are loved, never judged.